you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. All right, all you fans of Risk Management Monthly, we've got a real treat today. This is the March 2015 issue, and Rick, should should I introduce this guy, or is his name so famous that everybody knows the Graham Billingham? Graham, why don't you just tell the fans what you're doing these days because uh, we've had you on the show before. You're a real favorite here on Risk Management Monthly. So thanks for coming on board. We know you've just given some talks and you get a lot of new material. And we're really looking forward to this today. This will be a treat for Ricky and I. Graham Billingham, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, guys, for having me back. And um, currently um, working as the chief medical officer for uh, – the MedPro Group and focusing my energy on patient safety and risk management and uh, analyzing claims to figure out what went wrong and why and how we can get out in front of it and prevent this stuff from happening. Graham, uh, I went on to the website of MedPro. Uh, that's a big, big, big deal company. It says that you guys uh, insure 120,000 uh, providers and healthcare entities. Um, it's a Berkshire Hathaway company, so you get the what's it? What's it? Diet Pepsi that he uh, or Dr Pepper? What is it? You know, you got to know what he drinks <laughs> when he when he holds holds court there in uh, Omaha, and yeah. and eats sees candy. Yeah. So you C's actually candy. have you actually met Warren Buffett and he's told you what he wants and all that sort of stuff? God, big um, time. I, I've I've been about five feet away, but I did get to meet the Geico lizard. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I, I see one on the wall behind you right there. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, we're proud of you, Graham. Uh, we, you and I started out um, many, many years ago putting together the uh, National Emergency Medicine Board Review, uh, which is now in its 19th year. And you were one of the co-authors of that. And I remember to this day how positively uh, our relationship was and what a tremendous worker you were and how bright you were and so it's one of those things where we don't get to see each other much and talk uh, uh, much but Graham I have the highest regard for uh, you and I've watched your career and um, really I, I looked at all of the pictures of the executives of um, this insurance company and Graham's pictures right beside the CEO and I said Graham all you have to do is stick out your your right hand and you'll just push that picture right out of the picture there you know and it's all yours man it's all yours um, you spoke recently at ron uh, kroll's awani um thing this uh, semi-religious experience where they smoke peyote up in the uh, up in the, the mountains there um and it is a, it is a kick course because it's very social and uh, there's something for the spouses, and then there, at night everybody goes and watches photography, and here's a park ranger, and it's really very cool. And uh, you participated in that, and you gave us an outline because you are the sage. There's nobody, there's nobody in this country who knows more about what's happening in the world of risk management and what's being done to prevent it, uh, prevent errors, 
than you, Greg. So, uh, Graham. So we are really, truly, truly, truly um, blowing smoke up your butt because we're th- we're thrilled to have you. Well, thanks very much. And I, I think you know what we had talked about, maybe covering um, very briefly. You know, um, talk about the recurring uh, errors. But I think the more important thing is there's so much change going on in healthcare. Is you know. Um, uh, for emergency physicians, you know, where can we spot the new emerging risk? And um, I think there's a lot of pressure on claims frequency. And I think we probably have an interesting discussion about where we think that's coming from. Um, but you'd ask me just to highlight, you know, what are the recurring themes? They've been the same uh, for the last 25 years with some nuances, but we still have fractures and wounds being the, the bulk of the frequency of claims. Those are low dollar uh, claims. And on the severity side, uh, we still have MRI, stroke, uh, infections, and, and, and aneurysms and the like. And if you looked at that, you know, over the last 10 years, the PIAA data would say that the average indemnity paid. So these aren't, you know, frivolous cases. These, these are cases that have actually where there's been an indemnity paid is about 330000 um, in terms of severity, but it's clicked up a notch. It's uh, 360 for the 2012-13 year. And, but what is interesting is the cost of defending claims has really gone up. Uh, when I started in this business, you could defend a, a physician for 15000 20000 Now the average cost is 50000 um, that we're still being sued for failure to um, diagnose and failure to treat, although we are seeing a much more uh, increase in frequency on claims that are um, delay in diagnosis or delay in treatment, which is why there's so much uh, emphasis on first dose of antibiotics, you know, time to cath lab. Uh, we see an increase in radiology claims associated with the emergency department. And we also see um, an increase in uh, claims uh, naming the PA or the NP in association uh, with the physician. And we probably should spend some time talking about that. Oh, there's no question that uh, I don't have as big a picture of it as you do. But just in the cases that I'm consulted on, Graham, uh, if you look at the data, the number of people who are being seen by advanced practice people, PAs and NPs, has just skyrocketed in the last uh, 15 years. You know, early in my career, I never saw one of those cases, and their role was different now. I have all kinds of cases where there's a doctor's signature on the chart, and the doctor never saw the patient. Uh, And it's very interesting. The great plaintiff's attorneys can turn the doc against their PA or their NP and work one against the other to drive up those settlements. I think that's a very fair statement. And one thing you can say is in the old days, a standard malpractice policy would be shared limits between the advanced practitioner and the physician. We're seeing a lot more requests for separate limits, which really just throws another, you know, uh, chip on the table when it comes to med mal. And what we're seeing is not only are they seeing more patients, but their scope of practice is increasing. So the, what the plaintiffs are, um, it's it's no longer safe to say that advanced providers are slipping below the radar screen uh, from the plaintiffs bar. They're definitely on it, and they're going after a lack of supervision, increased scope of practice, and poor documentation. California emergency physicians last year stated that 40% of their 
volume. And they're the biggest, you know, they're the Costco of the state of California. They basically said 40% of their patients are seen by a mid-level, not also seen by a supervising physician. 40%. And uh, someone at that meeting actually asked the question, why isn't it 60%? I mean, it's an interesting question because as I go around the country and talk to people, nobody has a handle on two things what the scope of practice should be, what they should and should not see, and what the supervision level should be um, for the various cases that are seen. And uh, I think this is a much bigger issue than anyone wants to talk about. Uh, certainly at the American College, uh, we're not talking about it enough. Well, you know, Greg, I, I do think that I heard a similar kind of statement, but I'm not. But I didn't hear the extension that said that they were not seen um, by. They were solely seen by a uh, advanced practice clinician. So I'm not. I I personally don't know that that's true, and I certainly don't want to be hearing from Wes Curry that we have engrandized <laughs> uh, uh, this worse worse than it may be. But it's it that the numbers are pretty significant, and I it's it's only reasonable that there will be uh, more and more and more lawsuits involving these folks. The, the number of these people in the departments is just exploded, and it's going to get worse. Uh, not worse. I mean, uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's a truly mistake because I really believe that um, PAs and MPs really are, are essential parts of the emergency department. But this staffing is, is going to continue, and there's huge opportunities for people to work in the emergency department and you know you don't this is like a three-year course this is like um um 28 months 28 months or something like that and you've got a job as a pa for life and i think that this is a huge opportunity for people who want to get in health care and we need them yeah i agree and 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 one of the things ricky you said is you know the the uh, amount of folks that are that are coming into the departments but we're also seeing that they're sicker and they're more complex And so, again, you know, making sure that you have um, uh, good credentialing, um, making sure that when you're having risk management and QI monthly meetings, that you're inclusive with the NPs and PAs and make sure that there's really good communication um, and setting on expectations on both sides um, and really working collaboratively. That's going to be the key. But I will tell you that there is... Um, a lot of pressure on the frequency of claims. If you looked over uh, the last 10 years, claims frequency in general across all specialties is down. But severities continued to tick up about 2 to 4%, including on the hospital side. And some of the new exposures that we're seeing um, uh, are related to um, technology, uh, advances like robotic surgery, um, uh, a lot coming through right now. We've talked about this before, but I can tell you that electronic medical records um, are really hitting the courtroom right now. And the two things that are the, the biggest bugaboo about them is it's easy to make a physician look silly uh, on a lot of those sort of drop-down menu point-and-clicks. The medical decision-making thought process, which is really the key to defending a, a, a physician uh, in a court of law, um, it's not there. Um, and I would tell you that I think that the metadata that sits below the electronic medical record is the plaintiff's next asbestosis. There's so much data in there that they can mine, um, and it's the law of unintended consequences. 
Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> you know, Graham, have there been any um, more specific programs to try to um, narrow the opportunity for uh, mistakes on the part of uh, PAs and NPs? Because, um, you know, one of the things I see is this issue about supervision and levels of supervision. And um, it seems like it's very, very variable. And a physician makes a judgment and feels that this this PA can pretty much run on his own, and this PA I got to keep my eye on a little bit, a little bit more. Um, it, it's kind of like very subjective. And I can tell you that, having talked to a fair number of PAs, there is this view by many that they can't get supervision. That the uh, physicians are seeing their patients, and they, they want to, and they, and they want to have the, the PA see their patients, and I can't really do it right now, kind of thing, and that this quest for supervision is, uh, which you would think would be, you know, easily uh, addressed, is not, and that there's this tension that says, you know, they won't supervise my work to the extent that I, I really feel I need it, especially because when people get out. Uh, and their new PAs, they don't really have a, a lot of experience. And, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, we said, you cannot work in an emergency department like that. You cannot be dropped in with no experience in emergency medicine and, and learn by doing. And yet that's, I think, honestly, exactly what's happening in the world of the PAs and NPs. Well, you could apply the same analogy for a new physician coming out of residency, and we've all seen excellent programs of um, uh, mentoring um, uh, younger physicians or younger PAs or, or NPs, not letting them fly solo, you know, night shifts by themselves, uh, looking at their first 50 charts to give them fi- uh, feedback on their documentation, making sure that they're inclusive and brought into departmental meetings so they hear the discussions about for example, difficulties with on-call panels. So I think you can build a strong mentoring uh, program, but one of the things to do is to hold hands on what type of patients um, that you definitely want to have um, physician input on. You can pick an age on pediatric fever. You know, do you want to say, you know, less than six months, less than two months? Uh, pretty much everybody with abdominal pain and chest pain, um, interpretation of things like EKGs or x-rays. So there is a handful, and I'm sure Greg can throw in some more, of, of conversations that we know should be happening uh, in the department um, on this certain category of what we would deem are high-risk patients. I'll tell you right now, I think that anybody who's looking, any uh, NP or PA who's looking at a return visit, a patient who's come back, <laughs> probably ought to be run by somebody if you're going to send them home. Another group is those people who have openly expressed they're unhappy with the decision-making process that's going on. Because if you're wrong uh, socio- sociologically and correct medically, well, then you're just a jerk. But if you're wrong medically, too, and they're already unhappy, you know, it's the standard line, I told them grandma ought to be admitted, that sort of thing. I think, I think that the, there needs to be somebody available to help them out. That's, that's why they're the physician assistant or the nurse practitioner and not the doctor. And it seems like people are starting to believe that we don't have a role anymore. 
Well, and I would piggyback on that and say there's even more pressure because um, you use the example of not admitting and I'm getting calls from ER physicians around the country saying they're seeing a lot more patients that were discharged early um, and that now are sitting back in the ER in two or three days and yet there's this economic pressure um, uh, that says don't readmit these folks um, and that is a, that's a big problem and I hear it from around the country. In last month's issue of Risk Management Monthly, we reviewed an article that looked at 5 million discharges from emergency departments in 2007, so a little old on the data side, and they looked at how many patients were re, uh, were admitted to the hospital, not just came back to the ER, but were admitted to the hospital uh, within a week of their discharge. It was 2.6%. One in 40 people leave and, and wind up coming uh, back to be admitted, and as you can envision, the older you were, the more likely that this was to happen. And in the in, in the 80-ish uh, neighborhood, it was 5%. So one in 20 of those people came back and got admitted. And I don't think it was kind of like they were, it, it was like, well, it's okay, this might get worse, but if, if it does come back, I, uh, I think some of those have to be viewed as premature discharges that probably ought not have occurred. That's what I'm hearing. And, and the other thing is it's a sicker population. They're sicker, they're older, they're on multiple medications, they have comorbidities. And I would piggyback on that and also say I'm hearing from our colleagues um, that because of the exchanges, the networks and plans that they're now transferring patients out of their uh, facilities more than they ever have in a long period of time uh, once they've been stabilized and you've met all your MTALA obligations. And I think it's just dangerous to put elderly sick patients in ambulances and ship them across town. And so I think, I think the blocking on the readmissions, I think the increase in transfers, um, uh, talk about social media and data breach. Uh, we can talk about um, sicker older patients coming through that are more complex um, and, and this resistance to readmitting them. And another thing that we've noticed in a trend out there is the, the claims that are in the mid-tier sort of super losses, not the $1 million ones, but the sort of 5 to $10 million claims are increasing. And in the last 10 years, they've gone from 7% to 15 to 20%. So the, the, the awards that what the plaintiffs are pushing at are a little bit higher. Um, and again, we just see, a, a, even though frequency is historical lows across all specialties, we see a lot of pressure, and uh, there are some of us that are wondering, are we through the bottom of that curve, and we're going to start to see it tick up again. In, in that regard, uh, we've been following these states that have enacted major malpractice reform, Texas, Georgia, South, oh, is it South Carolina. South Carolina, correct. Um, and... <clears throat> We, we did a paper recently that basically showed that, uh, and we had interviewed the author, that there was no change in the p behavior of emergency physicians, even, in, in, even though they were in states that it was virtually impossible to get sued in, um, suggesting that our beating of the chest, that if only malpractice would go away, we would, we would, we would not be ordering all of these tests, which is clearly, 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 I think, a, a delusion. I mean... The malpractice stuff has been blamed for a long, long, long time. But now that it's being looked at with the searchlight of scientific inquiry, it, it's really it's it's this it's the way we practice. It was the way we were taught. It, it's not something that will be switched off 
within uh, years of, well, now there's no suits, law, lawsuits of any consequence, particularly in, in states like Texas. And it's what's interesting about that is uh, just a couple of quick observations. You know, it's estimated eight to twelve percent of the healthcare dollar is spent on defensive uh, medicine, um, and um, I see it actually uh, getting worse. I, I recently um, had a conversation uh, with somebody where they said, "Is the physical exam dead? Are we just going to end up, um, you know, uh, forget the stethoscope? We're just going to image everything?" Um, and I think you're right. Once it's sort of in, in the psyche um, and people want to make sure they have that um, on their chart. And I think campaigns like Choosing Wisely um, uh, are an interesting phenomenon because they're saying use a best practice guideline. And the second component is save the healthcare system money. So those are two good things. But when you're having a discussion with a parent uh, at two o'clock in the morning after they're waiting, have waited six hours and you're trying to convince them uh, that it, we're not going to give antibiotics for sinusitis and we're not going to CT your son's head and they're looking at you and their expectation is the only reason they came to the ER is to either to get the antibiotics or the CT scan. It puts us in a rough place. Well, you know, it puts us in a rough place, but then again, that's the place where docs have chosen to go. I mean, I understand I've got to justify what I do to parents, to grandparents, parents to who's ever there. I, I mean, I don't think we should back away from this. I always hear this complaint and say, well, they expect it. It's not out of my pocket. You know, doctors would behave differently if uh, they also were looked at for their total resource utilization and their pay reflected it. Uh, you know, to say that every, uh, every second headache needs a CT scan is quite frankly, scientifically a bunch of crap. It's bad medicine, it's bad science, and it, the worst thing is it, it feeds the bears. It teaches people that this is what you get when you come to the emergency department and not a real discussion of need. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the world who uh, they function differently than us, and uh, their patients live just as long as ours do. You know, there was an uh, article, actually, uh, Bob Athanasio, who has uh, been an EMA subscriber for uh, uh, all his life, uh, sent me a um, reference of a Medscape article, seven pages, on uh, the risks associated with choosing wisely, that the fact that, it, that, that we may perceive it, the whole organization says, you don't need to do this as much kind of thing, guys, that, in fact, the... Um, that can be a erroneous uh, assumption that you have some kind of coverage because all the people said this is something that we ought uh, ought not do as much. So um, I I haven't gone through that article, but it takes the other point of view that be careful choosing wisely is not an insurance policy, right. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's interesting, too. One of the conversations we ought to have is about the left-hand uh, side of medicine practicing differently than the right hand. So I completely agree with you, Greg. So if we don't give the antibiotics um, uh, in the ER and we don't get the CT, but the next practitioner downstream uh, does and uh, points the finger back at the emergency department and say, oh, yeah, you, you should have had a CT scan right away. That's the stuff that when we do finger pointing. So we've got to have everybody holding hands if we're going to adopt this. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't let people float around uh, saying things in court. 
that are just quite frankly wrong about the science. And that's just, that's just incorrect. And it happens all the time. It's always amazing that in retrospect, those guys can, they knew exactly what to do <laughs> on that patient who came in. Uh, if, if I was only as good in hindsight as I was at that period of time, I'd have been a great doctor. What can I tell you? <laughs> Greg, does, so, uh, oh, uh, Graham, does, does MedPro have any kind of um, uh, stance that if you want to be insured by us, you need to do X in terms of, in terms of your behavior, your policies, your, those kinds of things? Is that do you have anything like that? Well, I guess um, two two tiered answer to that. The first answer is um, that what we try and do is encourage the right behavior. Um, so, as you know, we've we've created uh, advisory boards that are specialty specific, so that the, the our insureds can access uh, a group of experts, and we also incentivize them uh, through premium uh, discounts to do patient safety and risk management. So that's a way, but we're not actually forcing people to to do that, but there's certainly a a benefit to participating in encouraging the right types of behavior and education. Well, I also assume that you uh, probably look at their uh, losses in the past and decide whether they're what level of risk they are, uh, whether they've been good boys or bad boys in terms of prior uh, claims uh, when they were insured by some other company. Oh, by the way, Randy Danielson says to say hello. Randy and I have become uh, buddies on our uh, uh, efforts in this um, this course that we put together for uh, PAs and NPs. Boot camp. Uh, emergency medicine boot camp. Is that, was that a plug, Greg? I, that, I, that, I, I, would, I would never <laughs> think to do it. It sounded like a, a plug. Yeah. Yeah, Rand, Randy and I have had this conversation frequently. He's a good egg. Uh yeah. But one of the other things I wanted to just throw out on the table and um, would appreciate your guys' view on is, um, you know, there's an explosion of telemedicine and retail medicine. And when I first heard about, you know, sort of the, the retail, you know, um, going to the supermarket or a pharmacy and, and, and getting care, I, I suddenly thought, wow, somebody's going to go in there with some indigestion and we're going we're gonna to miss some bad stuff. I can just tell you, maybe it's it's the tip of the iceberg, but we're not seeing a lot of claims experience coming out, um, and and patients are very adaptable and are utilizing that uh, as a resource. We just haven't had seen a wave of claims coming out of that. And Greg, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it's an, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting paradigm. Well, if you look at Iowa, half the emergency departments in Iowa are run only by uh, advanced practitioners by PAs or NPs, and they get backup from the University of Iowa. They call in, and they can speak to a doc at any time they want. And as you know, Iowa has relatively low suit rates and payout rates. And uh, there certainly has not been an increase in Iowa in emergency medicine cases uh, with all these NPs and PAs being there. Because I think they've pretty judiciously decided certain kinds of cases, they're going to call in and get an opinion. They're going to get some backup. And uh, uh, I, think that, I think that as long as people are aware of the potential danger, here's the joke. In a lot of busy emergency departments, they assign the, uh, the PAs to do the fast track and the quote-unquote easy cases. 
I think those are the hardest cases. Um, you know, when someone comes in with an arrow in their chest, it doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out what you're going to do. It's that, it's that 89-year-old who says, I don't feel well. Oh, by the way, I've got another one of my headaches. Uh, <laughs> that we think those are the low-risk cases. In my experience, they aren't. You know, obvious disease is obvious. It's, uh, it's minimal disease, which is the problem. You know, you mentioned arrow. Uh, Graham, you still bear hunting? <laughs> oh, I take a walk in the woods every once in a while with my bow. Not very successful at it, but I enjoy being out there. You, you uh, used to have a tradition where every year you and a buddy would go out and, and uh, either a bear would get you or you would get a bear. <laughs> Is that actually, actually, it was elk, um, and we're still going there. <laughs> oh, elk, elk, bear, you know, what the heck yeah. is the same thing. I remember the, the, thing- sto- the stories that you told b- about you know, running in in the in the path uh, of the bears that are uh, also looking for the same elk that you are. Well, life gets life life gets real simple in the woods. Food, water, shelter, and if you have an angry bear ten feet from you, life gets really simple quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, listen, I mentioned uh, uh, or I wrote a um, piece on these. Uh, clinics that are in, in drug stores and um cvs is right now like like the winner they have like 800 and they're d- going to double that to uh 1700 like in a year i mean they're really up on it and some of the other stores that you think would have been onto this have really been lagging particularly walmart has been uh, lagging in this regard but the cvs folks i saw an interview and uh of where they're going they they think that this is cool um and they're going to all be hooked up to these integrated care organizations, so they're not going to just be out there by themselves. Uh, there was another paper that we reviewed about who goes to these places. And um, my conclusion, which was a little probably uncharitable, was that the vast majority of the people who go to these places have uh, self-limiting illnesses that'll get no be- uh, get the, that'll get better no matter frankly pretty much what you do it's the colds it's it's the uh, runny noses my 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 ear is hurting uh, I got a little cut here I need a school physical um, all kinds of things that really honestly I mean I don't know whether school physicals matter or not to tell you the truth but yeah actually. or sports physicals they do a lot of that kind of stuff. And so when you looked at the list, it was like, well, how much is this is really kind of essential stuff? It's stuff that people want to take, have taken care of, but it's not much stuff that we can offer them a, a, a definitive, here, take this and you're good better. I think you're also going to see on the payer side um, um, uh, an explosion of really large um, corporations uh, putting their own types of clinics um, right on their own grounds. Um, and, you know, and taking care of a lot of the issues that you just talked about um, because it's so cost uh, prohibitive to send them to, you know, an emergency department and, um, and, and you know, the issues in, around uh, people taking time off work. So I think they'll see a big, big push there. One of the way, int- but if the urgent care business in America is also rising, it's a little it's above what happens at CVS. It's not an emergency department, but it is the cost-effective way. I mean, there's going to be payers 
who are going to uh, third-party payers who are going to tell their their clients go to the urgent care because if you look at the bills coming out of emergency departments, I mean, Rick, this is one of your big bugaboos. You can't walk into an ED without running up a fifteen hundred dollar bill, can you? Well, no. There's a great study uh, where they looked at the charges in a doctor's office, an urgent care center, and a an emergency department, and I think there was one other place. Oh, it was one of these CVS kind of places, and they had uh, the choices were a UTI, a bronchitis, and and uh, I think an ear infection. Something very straightforward uh, in the way of um, this is my problem. Looked at the paid charges, paid, not what was billed. Uh, a doctor's office was a hundred dollars. The urgent, uh, the, pardon me, the urgent care center was a hundred sixty dollars. The doctor's office was a hundred sixty dollars. The CVS was a hundred dollars, and the emergency department was five hundred forty dollars paid uh, for the same uh, disorder. So you're going to pay three to five times more for a nothing illness to be treated in the emergency department. And then they looked at these quality measures. The quality was least in the emergency department. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. you don't get what you pay for necessarily you know, when you go to an uh, ER. And we all know that. Um, and so there, it's kind of like you got to be an idiot not to try to provide care in some other venues if you're, if you're a payer. And I think the patients get that in spades. I mean, it's an access issue, right? So if, if it's too expensive and they can't get in, things like clinics, uh, things like telemedicine, uh, the patients are ready adopters of, of uh, utilizing that. Risk, Rick, one of the things you asked me to do is you know, sort of give you my top 10 of risk mitigation strategies if, in the emergency department. And you know, um, uh, for the listeners, this is what I would focus on. We've talked about NP and PA supervision, scope, documentation, making sure you have true collaboration. Uh, number two would be I think there's going to be a lot more requests on the plaintiff's bar on credentialing issues. So I'd focus on credentialing. Um, callback systems proven to be uh, effective. We still know that discharge out of the ED and follow-up of those patients is a big black hole. Um, a lot of data breaches going on right now. I would certainly sit down and talk with my uh, colleagues about social media policy and, and uh, about HIPAA. Um, I would also say that um, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Bob Bitterman, very much focused and concerned on uh, the radiology issues in emergency medicine. I would make sure that things like incidental findings, that there's good tracking going on and follow up for those things. Um, I, would, I would just tell you that uh, in terms of EMR, you cannot review your own records enough. It will help you with billing, coding, compliance, and med mal prevention. Make sure that you're happy with the documentation that's coming out of those. And for goodness sake, make sure um, that you've got uh, risk factors identified for the high-risk complaints and that you've got medical decision-making, your thought process on why you thought it was okay to send the 80-year-old with abdominal pain and fever home. Make sure there's a couple of sentences there that support your line of thinking. The other two things I would recommend is I would review your contract at least once a year, uh, take a look at it, um, and um, uh, I think there's a lot of incentive-based con um, contracts out there where people are going to be incentivized to order less tests, to not readmit, to not admit, and I just I would take a look at those those, those contract issues. I would do a risk assessment on your own emergency department 
every single year I would start in the waiting room and I would walk through to the point of um, admission and I would ask yourself um, where is the risk here because I can tell you that 50% of the claims that I review are not so much the clinical decision making but the environment in which we practice. Um, uh, and so I think the human factors engineering and the design, uh, we're human, we're going to make mistakes, um, but focusing in on systems that don't allow potassium to be given 10 different ways in a single ED, those are worth spending your time and energy on. The other is patient communication. I would address all patient uh, complaints quickly. I think it's an opportunity to um, uh, get in front um, and, and to have open communication. There's going to be a huge push on, on, on transparency. Uh, one of the problems we have is the sort of depersonalization of medicine. And when you see patients and you talk to them, they say, my doctor never talked to me. He was typing in, a, in an EMR the entire time. And I can remember 25 years ago, Greg, you said, look the patient in the eye, you know, touch them and make sure you've addressed their patients, sit down at the bedside. I can just tell you from a med malpractice, those things really work. Um, and, and last but not least, I would focus um, high areas of risk, triage, readmissions, transfers, callbacks, social media, and data breach. You know, I, I asked you to do this uh, five years ago. A, a lot of those uh, wouldn't even be in there. They would say social what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Graham, have you had any uh, claims uh, related to prolonged ED holding of patients who are to be admitted and who are sick? Because... Not too long ago, I did a, a review of this, and, and the, the idea was to point out the um, increased mortality, morbidity of asso in, in association with holding, particularly ICU patients in the emergency department. And I and the, this was a paper that I addressed to the CEOs because uh, it was one of the drivers, I think, for for getting people to come up with ways to get these admitted patients out of the ER. That there is it's not just an inconvenience issue. It's not just an issue of you're blocking up the whole department with these patients. It's that they are going to do less well. Their length of stay is going to be longer. Their morbidity is going to be higher. Well, Rick, yes. you remember last month uh, on this show, we presented a case where a child was in the emergency department, um, toddler, got diagnosed with, with uh, meningitis, the emergency doc wrote an order for an antibiotic, which was not given till the patient's upstairs on the floor nine, nine hours. hours, nine hours after he wrote the order. I mean, come on. You know, if you were in a country e uh, ER someplace with one doc, two nurses and six beds, they'd have gotten their antibiotics right away. So now you're in a big, fancy, special place. And sometimes the complexity and the territory, territorial nature of way we work, you know, not my table, not my job, that sort of thing, is really not good for the patient. It's just not. No question. It's a huge patient safety issue. Yes, we do see claims um, that the nature of the beast is everybody gets named. Um, and the plaintiff's strategy is to try and get people pointing fingers at each other. So having some, some conversations in around um, who, 
who owns an admitted patient and when, and when there is a transfer of care. I can tell you if they're sitting in your ED and in your hallway, um, you know, you, the hospitalist and the admitting physician are all getting to get named. Um, now, you know, we will do the best in terms of defending you in that situation, but it's likely that, that they'll name everybody, um, but, but it is worth the time to sit down and talk about transfer of care issues um, and who's responsible for what. We have always put on as emergency physicians our tennis shoes and run to the bedside when there's a fire. But as Greg pointed out, the, the question is for delay of things like antibiotics, who's monitoring that and following that in a busy ER um, on critically ill patients that are waiting for long periods of time? Um, psych patients, um, you know, holding for several days um, and, and, and the lack of monitoring in around them. It's no different than, than call coverage. Um, I have this conversation frequently. If you know that there are holes in your call panel, don't wait till 2 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night to fix that issue. Realize that you're not going to have orthopedic and cardiology coverage on Wednesdays and Fridays and do something about it in advance. And I would say the same thing is worth focusing on in terms of the admitted patients. Who's going to mind them? Who's going to be ensure that the orders, the, cons the consults, and the tests them uh, are getting ordered and done. And, and I can tell you that delays in treatment, the question in the court of law will be, did you do everything you could? And, and we're not talking about somebody with an ankle sprain, you're talking about people with meningitis. Did you order the cons cons consult that was available to you? Did you do the, uh, the CT scan or the, 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 the testing? And did you give the first dose of antibiotics? Those things will all be looked at in scrutiny. Let me tell you something else that I, I was just teaching yesterday, Graham, at the uh, Emergency Department Directors Academy in Dallas. Hundred docs in the room. There must have been 20 or 30 talking about the problem with hospitalists now who make statements like, no, that patient doesn't sound sick enough to me. Just discharge them. You know, somebody will see them in the, in the, you know, in two days in their office. And I just said to them, listen, if they want to come down, officially take over the case, write a consult, and assume all costs and liability on the discharge decision. But, you know, we're not stupid either. I mean, I've seen 140,000 patients in my career. If I think some, and I'm a conservative, if I think somebody needs to come in, how do you resolve this question with that hospitalist? I see everybody's uh, everybody's situation with different pressures to admit to not to admit who's going to pay the bill I think this can be a very difficult situation for the young emergency doc who's got to deal with an older hospitalist who paternalistically says I kind of know this stuff better it's okay to send them home well you know and you've seen you know over the last 30 plus years, um, sticking to your guns as an emergency physician is the way to go. And I would encourage young physicians, never let yourself being talked out of what your gut says and what you believe and your training. And I had the exact same conversation a week ago. Um, and the issue was um, a young emergency physician wanting to admit somebody um, uh, who was short of breath and elderly and the hospital is putting a roadblock up because the patient had just been discharged nine days before and said, nope, you need to keep them in the ER and tune them up. 
Yeah. Um, so, so, so the response there is, you know, this is somebody's grandpa, um, and uh, if you want to come down and see them, as you said, Greg, that's the way to handle it, and write an independent uh, note and take care and discharge them. But my recommendation to the patient and their family is that you should come into the hospital, and I think there is a lot of tension there, um, and um, it's sometimes beneficial when the hospitalist and the ER uh, physicians are part of the same group because hopefully there's more communication. But when they're not, and there's this sort of readmission pressure, and these patients are complex, they're sicker, they're elderly. Um, so I think, again, before there's a problem, I would start to have these uh, types of discussions of when there's a disagreement, how are we going to handle this? And when you're 98, statistically, you're already dead. I mean, you will touch them. You will touch them. That's very consoling, uh, doctor. <laughs> well, but the point is, uh, somebody's going to die. Now, do you want them to die upstairs having been admitted or sending them home and having them die? I mean, you understand the problem here. As patients age, as their disease gets worse, we are going to be there <laughs> at some point in time when they are going to die. And it, it, it is a difficult situation. There are... Uh, um, appears to be a hierarchy between hospitalists and emergency physicians where the hospitalists get uh, are viewed as the uh, the more senior the smarter that we know uh, more about admitted patients and um and that's not not that's obviously not good because they and every patient get that gets admitted to them is more work for them and if they're salaried by the hospital you, you know they it's just like in the old days where you had to talk the medica, medical resident into admitting a patient, um, it certainly is really smart for ER groups to be, to extend themselves and become hospitalist groups as well. It's just such a logical kind of thing to do because clearly the emergency departments are going to be the center of all dispositions in these health systems. And as soon as they get rid of that stupid three-day rule that Medicare patients have to be admitted before they go to a nursing home, the ER is going to say nursing home, go home, admitted, observation, and and they're going to run all of it. They need to, they need to run OBS. They need to run the high, uh, the uh, the hospitalist. These are all tremendous opportunities for, I, I gave for a emergency talk, physicians. I, I gave a talk twenty years ago when I was oh, I was about to be uh, president of the college, and it says the emergency department as the center of healthcare decision making. <clears throat> Uh, you can't imagine how mad internists and surgeons and other people were when I gave that talk in Washington, D.C. They, they hated me for it, and all of it came true. Every bit of it came true. I mean, now hospitals, you and I all remember, all of us remember, when people with bad back pains and headaches were worked up in the hospital. I mean, now you're either in a, some sort of unit, the operating room, or you're handled as an outpatient. <laughs> you're not coming into the hospital that way. We did an interview not too long ago, uh, and I'm blocking the fellow's name, but re remember, Greg, he was in the woods uh, someplace. This was based on an article that was written in the Western uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine, Medicine yeah. in which they were basically asserting that um, failure to staff an emergency department adequately um, was a, a um, an approach that lawyers could that lawyers were taking or could take to suggest that this accident was a, a, 
fairly predictable because you've got patients all over the place. You're, you're running around with a chicken with your head cut off. Two people uh, didn't, uh, called in sick and they haven't been replaced. And the fact of the matter is, is you've created chaos and you haven't done anything about it because you have no backup plan to deal with um, these situations. And so that ER crowding in itself, um, when it was off, off the chart or two standard deviations off the chart, was viewed as a, a culpable situation in terms of creating the um, environment for errors to occur. Right. It was, as he said, it, it was on the face of it, uh, negligence to not properly staff, not properly have backup, all this sort of thing. And that's an interesting way of looking at it. In fact, he quoted the Swiss system. Uh, he says it was amazing. He'd spent some time uh, uh, in Switzerland looking at their hospitals, and they don't have a lot of backups. Why? Because they mobilize people to get, to get them either get them home or get them up. But they ain't sitting around the emergency department. As he said, emergency department waiting it should be a, a phrase we, we don't even understand. If you're an emergency, why are you waiting? And I, I think that's an interesting view of it. Graham, one, of I issue, it- one, one of the other issues um, uh, that we're starting to see is um, and subpoenas is requests for not only uh, the electronic medical record, but also uh, your iPad, your iPhone. I know that it's state uh, regulations vary on this, but we're seeing a lot of requests for that. And one of the interesting strategies is um, if you're on shift in an ER uh, two o'clock in the morning and there's a, a, a bad outcome, uh, can I prove that you were, you know, in the back room uh, on your Yahoo account um, surfing the web? Uh, and it's an interesting thing. And I know several uh, several departments uh, that actually said no social media while you're on shift. But I also look at that as an, an increasing area of exposure. Can I prove in a court of law that you were distracted or doing something when this outcome happened? But I take it, uh, Graham, that you haven't had any um, allegations that this ER mistake occurred because of inadequate staffing. Um, not not seen that, but I, I'm I'm I've heard the buzz in the background, and 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 Greg is right. It, it you know it's a pretty cogent argument, but there are many places, particularly out in critical access hospitals, where the doc may be 20 minutes you know from the from the ER, uh, and there may be a PA or an NP or or even a, you know uh, an advanced nurse there, um, and that that's the standard of care in the community because of um, the lack of um, uh, trained uh, folks that are you know. Um, uh, that that's definitely a problem. Yeah, way, I, if, if you I, look I, at that data from very, very big time hospitals, all that sort of thing, and then you look at the some of the small rural critical access hospitals, um, I don't think their death rates are any different. Uh, you know, we'd like to think that that you're better in some of these places, but some of those people who need to be transferred to the big hospitals, they're damn sick. We can't afford to have everything everywhere in the community. You can't do it. So that means that um, family physicians who are working in these offices are often staffing these hospitals when, you know, when they're not in their office. And um, it's one of the reasons why ASAP ought to wake up and embrace these f- physicians who are out there 
who are doing their best to provide emergency care, and there will never be a board-certified emergency doctor out there ever, never, ever, ever. No, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a PA or one of these people who is backing the PAs up who is working in the community, and that's, that's sort of what we're going to be able to afford and do, and you're not going to have all people on call at these kinds of hospitals. It'll never happen. Hey, Greg, Greg let me ask you a question, and one of my questions is the, the risk of um, emerging technologies and, and maybe the discrepancy between the younger physicians that are coming out and, and some of us older practitioners. And uh, so I'll give you an example. I was recently having a conversation with an emergency physician, and they've got technology now that sits above their EMR that basically trolls the database looking for early sepsis indicators. And they're actually identifying patients who either have blood pressure, pulse, pulse oximetry, lactate levels. And I look at this and, and that's where I see technology, you know, they've actually, you know, that's a useful thing. But I wonder if the rest of us who aren't using that technology get get held accountable. And I, I struggle with this issue of when new technologies become uh, embedded in a standard of care. And I would appreciate your thoughts on that. First, when anything new comes along, don't be the first one to jump in on it, but don't be the last to pick up on it. Uh, the sepsis bundle is a perfect example of this. I think the data says two things. Early on, big-time antibiotics, and early on, big-time water. Uh, all of the other things we've talked about uh, Oh, we'll put in a central catheter to measure this and that and another thing. I don't think those are the big issues. I think the big issues are still the stuff that we grew up with clinically. You know, I know the children now don't own a reflex hammer and they don't, you know, because they've got a CT scanner, so they don't need one kind of thing. Um, I don't think we've proven a lot of that technology has actually changed the outcomes on a lot of these things. Uh, what, what still gets you in trouble, though, Graham, is not picking up on the obvious clinical clues. You know, a 25-year-old male with a pulse rate of 140 and a fever, there's something wrong there, and I don't think you need to know what the central PO2 is to know that that person's sick. And, and they're going to get certain things in their treatment. So I, I think that we're always moving. We're always changing the technology. But uh, be slow to think it's, it's you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Because, uh, and I think the sepsis bundle is a great example of that. We had people who became, first of all, we expanded the di what, what the sphere would be what's called sepsis. So now a six-year-old with severe strep throat meets the criteria for a sepsis bundle. I, I mean, we've got, you know what that does? It makes all the sepsis outcome studies look better because if you included enough patients who we wouldn't have missed in the past, would have treated and would have gotten better, and it didn't make any difference. Um, but, but you're right. We at least need to be aware what's coming down the pike that doesn't mean you have to adopt it without some pretty hard evidence that this changes outcomes. I and, think I, and I would I would agree with that. That um, you know, still the majority of the claims that I um, uh, see are about a failure to do the basics. 
right? Yeah, exactly. And, it's blocking and tackling. You know, there's very few of us who make brilliant diagnoses, you know, walk in the room, see one little tiny thing, had have come up with, uh, oh, well, that's a form frust to the foie à la Jouinet syndrome. That kind of stuff doesn't actually happen except on television. Uh, most of us are just country boys doing the best we can. Although um, one of the potential benefits of an EMR, uh, given the fact that right now there are no benefits from it, uh, it, slow, <laughs> it, slows, it slows you down. And you cannot show that it makes medical quality uh, any better. But one of the th promises was that we would have decision to support integrated into these programs that would uh, allow us to be, uh, pick up on these clues, practice evidence-based medicine, ask you, doctor, do you sure you don't want a D-dimer before you order that uh, CT pulmonary angiogram? Uh, all kinds of things like that that would help us. Right now, it seems to be largely limited to drug-drug interactions where you've got 55 stops before you can order an aspirin. But um, it seems that decision support has lagged behind the implementation of these things, which are now basically just uh, doing histories and physicals, charting progress notes and those kinds of things. And so I think that the promise i do think that there's value in decision support i think that there's value in it being well done it's not something that is particularly easy to do but if stuff would pop up during the process that that would kind of get you to think twice about certain kinds of things i know of actually an initiative that's going on right now to create real-time decision support for say for the sake of discussion you have a teenager who is 15 who comes in and he's six foot five and he's having some chest pain um it might suggest that you may think of an aortic dissection in this kid because this is actually abraham lincoln walking in this marfan kid which was never diagnosed as marfan and and you've never seen one before it's 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 the idea of not only catching the routine important things but the rare very dangerous things where he would just plant the seed have you considered and so i think that that's where this needs to go it hasn't gone there yet and um um we've got a long way before we're there by the way i would ask that child uh is your father here with you and he'd say no he died of an aortic dissection yeah he had a heart attack when he was 15 too and so did his brother have a heart attack at yeah, 15 yeah. Aren't these, the thin, aren't these the thinnest, most spindly fingers you've ever seen in your entire life? Yeah, yeah. Blocking and tackling. Yeah, that's right. Graham, any other, uh, uh, any other pearls of wisdom you can give us? Well, I think we covered a lot, a tremendous amount of uh, ground. Um, obviously, the landscape is changing. Um, I think it go back and, and, and focus on the basics, some of the communication issues that we've talked about, um, particularly uh, with advanced uh, practitioner providers, um, and um, take a look. Do a risk, a risk assessment in your own ED uh, from an operational perspective where, where it's very enlightening to wear the hat of being a patient. Start in triage and walk through um, and make sure you do that once a year. Uh, it's well worth uh, the time spent. Graham, one Graham, of the things that uh, comes up is this business about accountable care organizations and the fact that they're going to make money by billing out less than their peers 
and they're going to get a piece of the difference. And uh, the idea there is maybe when you do less, you will make more. It's kind of the same idea as it, the HMOs. I don't know why they don't call it the same thing, but the idea is that we will make money by doing less uh, than our peers who uh, are being compared to, and then you get a split of that, um, which means that emergency physicians and all physicians would need to kind of change their hat and say, um, the less we spend, the less we bill uh, Medicare, the more money that we'll make. And that's a really 180-degree flip-flop from uh, where we are now, where the more you order, the more you make. And um, have you been aware of any organizations where they have kind of embraced in any way um, efforts to decrease their spending uh, and decrease their utilization because they are now a a part of an accountable care organization who intends to make money by being leaner and meaner. Oh, yeah. And I I think we raised that issue earlier about, you know, uh, making sure that you review your contracts. Um, I know of some some, uh, physicians that have been asked to decrease uh, on the utilization side ordering patterns. I think people will look at um, uh, incentive-based uh, contracts on uh, things like readmissions. I can also tell you I get calls from physicians, hey, Graham, the drugs that I'm used to prescribing are no longer on my exchange formulary. If I use a third-tier drug uh, and there's a bad outcome, will I have some exposure? Um, I would tell you that you know one thing that I see is the complete disruption of the, the patient safety network is is the system that when you practice as an ER physician in a community hospital for 20 years and you pick up the phone at 2 o'clock in the morning, you've known that other general surgeon or internal medicine or cardiologist and you say, hey, it's Graham, this is what I've got. But you've had coffee with them, your kids played on the same soccer team. That really worries me because time and time again I hear people saying, well, I'm having conversations with people in the middle of the night and I've never even met them. And I think there's a little bit of that safety net that's gone now, and it's this skinny network concept. So less physicians that you're used to dealing with and communicating, less drugs that you're used to dealing with, and also incentives to not order tests and not admit patients. By the way, some of those incentives are correct. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be one of those guys who defends emergency docs who say, oh, I'm just doing it for the patient's benefit. No, you're doing it because you're dumb and you don't know what else to do. You and I have to agree that probably 80% of the CT head CTs ordered in the United States are unnecessary. You wouldn't see them done. Maybe you see half as many in Canada and a fifth as many in Britain. I mean, you can't have it both ways, folks. You're going to either be an over-orderer or in some degrees an under-orderer a little bit. But right now we're way to the way over on the curve here on overordering. Not every kid with impetigo needs a white blood count, and and it's like we don't talk about this seriously. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a villain out of other people who are telling us, hey, maybe you ought to be thinking about what you're ordering and cut down the cost a little bit because actually it doesn't move us ahead in the diagnostic process and. Uh, you, you know, I, I just don't want us to fall into that trap of saying, oh, well, don't interfere with me. 
I'm the doctor, and I get to order anything I want. Yeah, I think you ought to be an intelligent orderer of, of, of things, and that means in our own group, I'm telling you, there was five times difference on the ordering of CT scans and headaches. Five times. How do you defend that? How, how do you defend all those costs? I don't know how you do it. Yeah, in the abstracts, we looked at a couple of papers looking at um, variability within departments. <clears throat> and two papers were from Brigham and Women's. And uh, one of them looked at head CTs and the other looked at CTs in general of about 35 doctors, um, all faculty-level doctors, and uh, their, the variability in their ordering over, and it was a, it was a large database. It would it, it's pretty unassailable. It was just unbelievable, and I and I really, in many ways, admired them for showing this variability out of a university that is teaching residents how to become emergency physicians, and yet, how could you possibly do that when there is this extraordinary variability? And then when they looked at outcomes. There was no link to outcomes with regards to the uh, utilization. And some of the most senior doctors were among the worst in ordering the CTs, and some of the youngest doctors were the best. It's like there was no predicting it. And every time that that comes up and people look at it, it is pretty shocking what the variability is, what the bell-shaped curve is. And I think that everybody needs to see what the bell-shaped curve is so that you can kind of feel comfort towards me going towards the middle of the bell of the bell. We all know doctors who order are ordering machines. Um, what can we do to change their behavior? They're all risk averse. They they say this is the way they did it in their residency, which is probably true. And it's like it's this is going to take generations to get doctors to be motivated economically, medical legally, or otherwise ethically to kind of back off. Well, That's I think why, it'll... Go ahead, Greg. Whenever you start the discussion of saying, well, this is a perverse set of incentives, there are perverse incentives on both sides of that issue. Every system in the world has some perverse incentive. I agree. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it, you're correct. And I, where I was going to go was it's a balancing act, right? It's, it's, about, it's about fine-tuning your department and looking at the outliers, um, and, I, and I think it's not going to take uh, generations, Rick. I think uh, for the reasons that Greg said, there is going to be so much focus on utilization and a lot more transparency. Um, regardless of where you're practicing, I think this data will be available, um, and I think that that will help uh, change behavior, particularly if it's not making a difference in outcomes. So it's a balancing act. Um, I just uh, what I see in the in the marketplace is a lot more pressure and focus on utilization, um, making smart choices. And if I was in an, an ER group in a community hospital, having these discussions about you know CT, not CT, antibiotic, not antibiotic, um, and and you'll see more and more of this choosing wisely uh, kind of effort that says. The, the science or the best practice, the guideline says this, but it is also a cost-effective mechanism. I don't think this issue is going away. Well, no. you know, it's interesting. We had internally for many, many years all the distributions of data with regards to the utilization of test drug supplies, you name it. And the worst thing we could possibly do would be to let anybody in administration see that data. We, we, we gave them very, very selected data on throughputs and things that we wanted to show them. 
but we would never show them the difference in the variability between physicians and ordering of CTs because any chief medical officer for the hospital would say, what's the story here, guys? There was, there was going to be somebody else asking you to be accountable for this variation. Right now, when it was just in turn of the ER group itself, it's like, well, we'd like to fix it kind of, but nobody's making us. When there's other people seeing this variation, because they have electronic medical records and anybody in the hospital can get this data, it's going to be, hey, guys, there's a tenfold variation in their use of CTs. Can we talk about this? I, so I think that there will be the opportunity to accelerate this process because other people will be coming down, other medical people are coming down and say, hey, how about a little explanation here? Yep. They're already and, here. They are already here. <laughs> yes. And, and to some extent, the only people doctors have to blame on some of this stuff is themselves. You realize we, we told the American public since the end of the Second World War, trust us. We'll, we know what to do. We know what to order. We know what to this and that and the other thing. And you know what? We screwed them and we let them down and we didn't ask the right set of questions. I, I mean, if I was the public, I wouldn't trust us either. Uh, I really wouldn't. I, I mean, they need somebody to come in and say, wait a minute, this guy can get patients out of the hospital in two days and he's not got, you know, they're CHF patients. These guys over here, you've got them in for 10 days, and, you know, they don't live any longer. What's the problem here? Some of the pushback that I've gotten in the past in talking about this effort to narrow practice variation has been, you know, hey, Graham, um, you know what? Don't talk to me about cookbook medicine. And And my response to that is, my response to that is, Hey, listen, there are 90 chief complaints in emergency medicine. You know, for 80 of them, yes, medicine is an art, um, uh, and I'm wearing my risk management hat now. But for these 10, we probably ought to have a conversation because we know they're high risk. Absolutely. More than that, I've had some great meals made out of cookbooks, and I've had some real (laughs) shit made by people who thought they were just going to throw crap in a bowl. So uh, this uh, cookbook medicine thing, I, I don't think I think that thing uh, got out of control. They don't even know what they're talking about on this, but that's a thought. Hey, listen, Greg, it's time for wine of the month. Ah, uh, God, you know I'm talking to two uh, two guys sitting where some of the best wine in the world is made. Yeah, right, uh, right down here, Rancho Cucamonga. <laughs> Rancho Cucamonga, exactly. Uh, I'm going to give you one vineyard which has come up dramatically. They're called the White Oak Vineyards and Winery. They are, again, in Sonoma County. They have, they have a Sauvignon Blanc, which is just dynamite. I mean, this wine is, you know, you taste this. It's as good as anything I've ever had, and it's 17 bucks a bottle. Come on. You can't beat that. White Oak's Vineyards. Sauvignon Blanc, the, two thir- the, the 2013, uh, I, re- I recommend it, guys. And, uh, you know, call up your local wine guy, give him that, and uh, they'll send you a case. Uh, you can afford it. Drink this stuff with your friends. You can- I'd even let my friends have a second bottle. Uh, that's how cheap this stuff is. Because, you know, usually when you're having a dinner party, you open up with a great bottle, and the second bottle is uh, Mad Dog 2020 or something. It's <laughs> Nobody, does, no, nobody knows the difference by that time. But this stuff is good. 
There you go, Rick. Thank you, Greg. Graham, uh, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, I really don't think anybody knows more about this in the country than you do. Uh, and it's nice to see you again, my friend. Great to see you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Bye-bye. Talk with you next Take month. You. Signing off. Oh, my God.